Hi, my name is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to share easy to understand, evidence-based, holistic insights to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about how to avoid becoming a victim of a banking scam. The government projects that Australians lose about $3.1 billion a year due to scams. And because our life is becoming more digitalized, particularly in banking and financial services, we do become more susceptible to scams. So it's really important that you take steps to protect your money. And also I've noticed that as a result of these scams or the banks trying to navigate and mitigate these scams, banking has changed a little bit as well in terms of its usability and so forth. So I want to talk about that and share three really important tips that you can do or steps that you can take to really minimise your risk. So let's look at the data then. And the National Anti-Scam Centre, which is a relatively new government department, compiles a lot of data around scams. And the most commonly perpetrated using phone, email and text messages. So really electronically. Uh, of course, other than phone, which is analog, of course. Other methods such as social media, the internet, uh, in person, these are less common sort of situations. So it helps us really focus where we need to be vigilant. And it's really around phone calls and electronic media. More than 77% of scams are committed in only five ways. So there's really only five ways you're probably likely to get scammed. The first one is phishing attacks. It's like a fake email or text message purporting to be from a trusted source. You click on the link, they end up stealing your information or installing malware on your computer or something like that. So you've got to be really careful with phishing attacks, of course. The second one, and so that makes up 44% of scams. So that's the lion's share, if you like. Uh, 16% is on false billing. You know, if you get a invoice, uh, a common one that you receive via a text is a toll road invoice that is, hasn't been paid. And so false billing is really about saying, look, you owe us some money for goods or services that you never actually used. 9% is online shopping scams. That's where a website advertises an amazing deal to sort of lure you in get dazzled by the savings or the deal and you forget to focus on the fact that the website isn't actually legitimate and you never receive the goods. Hacking and remote access is 9%. So that's fraudulently gaining access to your computers to either steal information or again install malware on your computer. It's funny, I think most of us worry about hacking the most, but it's only 9% versus uh, phishing attacks are 44%. And identity theft is 8%. That's obviously when someone steals your personal information so that they can impersonate you for fraudulent purposes. So, for example, apply for credit, purporting to be you using your identification details. Now, it's important to understand liability. So if you do get scammed, whose liability is it? You know, you lose money, whose liability is that? So most Australian banks and credit card companies have what's called a zero liability policy for unauthorized transactions. That means that if you have done a few things, that is taken reasonable measures to safeguard your electronic devices and login details, and you promptly inform the bank when you've identified the fraud, you're likely to be reimbursed for the loss. And that's what their zero liabilities policies suggest, which means that if you take 
reasonable steps, you know, we'll keep our end of the bargain and compensate you for any loss. That new government department, the National Anti-Scam Centre, is in the process of developing a comprehensive, what they call, scam code framework that replaces places responsibility on both banks and, and other institutions like telcos and so forth. Hasn't been finalised yet, but the UK adopted a kind of similar voluntary code, although it's probably more stringent, which puts uh, significant obligations on UK banks, uh, almost to the situation where it doesn't actually really matter what the customer has done. In fact, whether they've taken all reasonable measures, the bank is liable. We're probably not going to see that in Australia, but it's good to make sure we understand liability. So therefore, if you're going to take the three steps that I've suggested in this blog, I can't guarantee you in every situation the bank's going to compensate you, but I think it goes a very long way for demonstrating that you've taken all reasonable measures to protect your information and login details and so forth. Okay, so what are the three things that you can do then to protect yourself? So having the first one is use a password manager. You know, having robust password security is really important. Many people have really poor password habits, and that can include using identical credentials across all websites. So not only identical password, but also the identical username. And also they tend to keep a a hard copy list of passwords, often nearby their computer. So the best way that you can enhance your security is really by using long passwords. Typically, they suggest 12 characters or more, including both letters, numbers, and symbols, and also different usernames as well. The other thing that is important or increases security is two-factor authentication. That means that you need to get a code from a different provider as a second kind of step of authentication to log into a particular website. Well, that's really difficult to do. These things are difficult to do without a password manager. Can you imagine trying to remember 12 character passwords for every single login that you've got? It's near on impossible. So if you haven't got a password manager, which is really just a bit of software or an app that maintains all your passwords, that's got to be your number one goal for 2024. So there's a few popular choices, uh, one called Bitwarden, and I've got the links on the blog on the website, of course, as usual. And Bitwarden actually gives you a free account option, so you don't, it's not going to cost you any money. 1Password is another provider and keeper. I use personally and we use in ProSolution. It's part of the Microsoft suite of products. But it really does streamline your security, enhance your security. It works across multiple devices. It makes it a lot easier. You don't need to remember every single login and password. But the benefit is that you can make your login details as strong as possible by using different usernames and also very strong passwords. So that's the first step, use a password manager. Second step is you've got to be very, very vigilant with emails, texts, and phone calls. So you've got to be really suspicious of unsolicited emails, texts, or phone calls, You know, especially if they're trying to create some sort of urgency or panic. Never give your information over the phone unless you know who the caller is. Instead, try to independently verify that caller's contact details, and if you can't do that, just end the call. Never click on any links or attachments from unknown senders. If you're going to click on a link, you know, hover the mouse over links so you can see the URL to make sure that it's what you expect. 
you know, so if it's purporting to be from Coles, for example, that, you know, it's coles.com.au in terms of the URL, often they're not and you can you can identify it. Never give your personal information over a website unless you know the website is secure, which means it has an SSL certificate. Again, I've got a link on the blog on the website to give you more information about that. But essentially, I think what I would say is the general rule is don't trust the communication unless you absolutely know where the communication is coming from. I think you're better off to assume everything is fraudulent and prove otherwise than the reverse to really protect yourself. And I should note that most hacking scams are a result of not necessarily a fail in technology, but human error. So someone's clicked on something, someone's provided information. You know, it's us making the mistake, not the computers themselves. And the final of the three steps is to log into your banking on a daily basis. You know, I've developed a routine over the last couple of years of logging on to all my bank websites every day. Normally, it's one of the first things I do in the morning. And it allows me to identify if there's anything that's gone wrong, if accounts have been locked or if there's unknown transactions and those sorts of things. And in fact, a month or two ago, we had two charges on a credit card that were unauthorized. And this process of logging in every day allowed me to identify them straight away, notified the bank. They were reversed within one or two days. So very quickly, you know, the money was back there and all's good. So it might sound like a bit of a chore to do that, but once you sort of form that habit, it really doesn't take much time and it's just something that's sort of part of the the day. Unfortunately, I think it's something that we just need to get used to because that identifying uh, scams as soon as they happen is a really critical element in helping the bank obviously recover funds and so forth, but also protect your liability as well to make sure that, okay, now it's the bank's problem to really trace this through. So I think if you do these three steps, if you take these three steps, password manager, be really vigilant around emails, texts, and phone calls, and log on to your banking every day, it puts you in a very good position to demonstrate to the bank that you've taken all reasonable steps to protect your data and login details and so forth. And if you then do suffer a loss beyond that, you know, then it's going to be the bank's problem, not really yours. A couple of other tips while I'm here, don't email sensitive information such as ID, tax returns, bank statements, those sorts of things, anything that has identifiers on it. Instead, share information via you know cloud, the cloud storage like OneDrive, Dropbox, Google Drive, these sorts of things and password protect it. So certainly in our business, we always educate our clients never to email us stuff, emails unsecure. Of course, keep your software up to date, including your operating system, web browser, antivirus software. You know, it's important those things are up to date. And the other thing that I have used uh, more recently as well is that if you have a a debit card or a credit card with a bank, all banks, almost all banks have apps, they will then give you a digital card, that app, and the digital card will have what they call a dynamic CSV number, which is the, you know, the three numbers on the card that you need to verify normally when you make a transaction and so when you purchase something online you can use that dynamic csv 
and it reduces the risk of fraud by you know 40 to 60%. So if there's a data leak and they get access to your credit card details, the CSV number will be out of date within 24 hours and won't be usable. So it kind of protects you. Of course, that's the bank's risk, not you, but having your credit card cancelled and reissued is a major pain in the neck because you've got to then go and update all the people that use that credit card on a regular basis. Now, as you would expect, fraud and scams and so forth are costing the banks a lot of money. And they, of course, are taking a lot of action to mitigate that risk and reduce that liability. Unfortunately, some of those steps mean that the experience with the bank can be quite painful. So I'll give you a couple of examples. First one is that if a bank detects a suspicious transaction, they'll quite often lock your account. And I experienced this recently, in fact, last year, where I was overseas and I was transferring money onto uh, using a foreign exchange travel card and I was transferring money onto that card. Each time I made that transfer, they would lock my account and I'd have to spend about 30 minutes on the phone, you know, speaking to the people, find the right people to unlock the account and verify the transaction. The pain was that every time I did that transaction, which might have been a few times over a number of weeks, they would keep locking the account despite me saying, hey, I'm going to be using this. So look, they only care about their risk, of course, and their risk of loss. So they're going to implement policies like this that aren't really congruent with customer service. They're more focused on minimising their risk, and it can be a painful process from a customer's perspective. The second example is withdrawing cash. You know, if you go and withdraw a couple, more than a couple of thousand dollars from the bank, the teller is going to ask you, what do you need this cash for? And it kind of feels very intrusive and really none of their business. And a lot of people kind of get their back up with this. But the banks have to ask this question because they've got an obligation to identify suspicious transactions. And unless they ask you, how are they really going to identify if it's a suspicious transaction? And that's part of their anti-money laundering obligations. And also they need to check that you're not being scammed. So for example, if you know you say, oh, I'm re- withdrawing the cash because I need to pay my insurance bill. Well, the bank's going to know most insurance providers provide, you know, BPAY, you know, online payment processes that are more secure and no one's going to ask for cash. And so then they can identify that you're being scammed. But the bank, I think it's going to get worse. You know, the banks are really going to clamp down on this because it's going to start costing them a lot of money. And we as customers are kind of bear some of the brunt of that in terms of experience. And finally, if you're in business, there's a couple of other steps you should really be thinking about. The first one is it's really crucial that your staff undertake regular cybersecurity training. We do it monthly at ProSolution. I think monthly is the right way to go. I think any less, you know, you you need that sort of constant reminder. And, you know, that just trains people around phishing scams and, you know, everything that's kind of new that they need to keep on top of. In fact, our IT manager conducts sort of phishing scam campaigns. So they'll send out a phishing email to all staff to see if anyone actually clicks on it. Luckily, everyone's always passed those, <laughs> those tests. But regular training for staff, because that's your weak point, is that someone makes a, a human error and then your IT systems are then exposed. The second other important consideration is how much cash you have in your trading bank account. It's important to keep a good level of working capital in your bank account, of course. But if you have surplus cash, so really anything more than what you need for working capital, move it out of that account. Put it in a more secure account that has 
limited transacting ability, you know, such as a debit card attached and so forth. So an investment cash management account or something like that is a good solution there because it tends to be a little bit more secure and it should be outside your trading entity, again, just for security. So there you go. They're the things that I think you should be doing individually and as a business to really protect yourself against scams. They're occurring more often. They're going to become more sophisticated as each year passes. So we need to be more vigilant as individuals, of course. And I think if you follow these steps, you're well in front. And of course, if anything changes, I'll be writing about it or talking about it, as you can imagine. Okay, that's it for me this week. Until next week. Bye for now.